Good morning. Good morning. I invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 8. I'd like to sincerely thank everybody for your prayers this week. I know I've sent out a few different messages on one call. Uh, our niece Mila was born on Monday last week, and it was a scheduled inducement, induction. And uh, so she was a full-term baby, and there were just a lot of complications during the labor. Um, her, <coughs> excuse me, the cord was wrapped around her neck, I guess, twice. And uh, so they do an emergency C-section. Um, I guess my sister-in-law wasn't even all the way numb when they did that. Like, she could feel it. And, um, and so after Mila was born, it took over 20 minutes before she breathed her first breath. And uh, definitely wasn't the day last Monday that anybody in the family was expecting. Uh, my sister-in-law has two kids already, and you know everything just went smoothly when they were born. And um, Mila being a full-term baby, I think everyone thought it was going to be the same way, but we never know. And life is a fragile thing. Um, you know, we're always just a, a phone call away from everything just being turned upside down. Uh, so again, I do really appreciate everybody's prayers. And pray that you could, I ask that you continue to pray. Um, last I heard, they have an MRI scheduled for Mila tomorrow. And um, certainly really hoping and praying that they don't see any negative signs, especially with brain activity, brain function. Um, I, know, I know the baby's been looking around and wiggling around. So I think we've seen some good signs on those fronts. Um, I think she's either entirely or almost entirely breathing on her own at this point. Um, they were able to do an ultrasound on, on her head, and they didn't see anything problematic with that. Um, so, again, I think there's been a lot of positive indicators. Um, her situation and the length of time I don't think is particularly common, but throughout the week I've heard some other similar stories of babies who uh, were in similar situations when they were born. and who made full recoveries, and certainly hoping and praying that it's the same way for Mila. So again, if you could continue to pray for her, as well as for my sister-in-law, Rachel, and my brother-in-law, Stephen, uh, I can't imagine the week that they've had. I know I'm drained from this past week. I can't imagine what this was for them. Um, so please continue to pray for them. Uh, Carrie is heading back today, uh, so I'm praying for safe travels for her. And uh, I know it was, it, was, it was a tough week for her, too. Uh, she didn't even get to see the baby. Um, and so definitely, again, I sincerely appreciate everybody's prayers. Also, I'd like to say, I, I know um, some people are going to be watching online today uh, just because there are so many cases in town. And to everybody who's watching at home, just want to say hi. Uh, we love you, and uh, I hope you're doing well. And, uh, yeah, John chapter 8 today. It's my plan uh, to have this be our last sermon in John for this year. Um, my plan, Lord willing, is to begin a Christmas series next week through the book of Esther, which isn't necessarily the most common Christmas text, but I think it'll work. So I'm excited about that. And uh, again, just appreciate all of you. So John chapter 8, we're just looking at one verse this morning. John chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, with all of the cases of COVID going around town right now, we continue to praise you for the health of this church. And Lord, we continue to pray for that. 
Lord, I want to pray for the Bowers and for Eric today. I want to pray that none of them get this virus. Lord, I pray for your hand of protection for all of us with COVID, and especially in times when we're interacting with somebody who has this terrible virus. Lord, we pray for people in our community who currently have COVID. We pray for their health. We pray for their recovery. Lord, we continue to pray for the development of a vaccine. Lord, but in that, may we be pointed to your gospel, that there is only one true plague on the world, and that is sin, and there is only one true remedy, and that is the blood of the Lord Jesus. And may we be pointed to that, Lord, as we thank you for the gifts we have of modern medicine. Lord, I do want to continue to pray for my niece, Mila. Lord, I want to pray for her recovery. I want to pray every day that she's just getting stronger, that she's um, recovering more and more for the steps that she's been taking. Uh, Lord, I want to pray for the MRI tomorrow. Again, just want to pray for her health, for her brain function. I want to pray that everything just be um, flying colors with that. And I also do continue to pray for, for Rachel and Stephen. Lord, I pray for strength for them. I pray for um, just their, their heart and love for you, Lord, that that can sustain them in this time and that they can trust that you are a good God and a sovereign God. Lord, we pray for our time in your word this morning. May you lead our hearts and minds to the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name, amen. In the Bible, there's this contrast between light and darkness. Light is good. You can see in the light. Darkness is sinister. Darkness is where bad things happen. I read an article this week that said 11% of adults have a fear of the dark. Another article mentioned that fear of the dark is a common fear in children. And what I thought the article should have said was that fear of the dark is a common fear in children and among adults who tell the truth. Because fear of the dark is not so much about fear of the dark. It's about a fear of the unknown and a fear of what you can't see. No one walks down a dark alley in the middle of the night when it's dark and thinks, this is just, this is great. I love this. Some of you might be thinking, well, that's why I don't do that. Yeah, because you're afraid of the dark. Nighttime is when most crimes happen. Nighttime is when virtually everyone in horror movies dies. No one goes camping and in the darkness in the woods hears something moving and doesn't automatically assume it's a bear getting ready to eat you. The unknown, the unfamiliar, the things unseen, all of it makes fear of the dark rational. And so where I want to begin this morning is with a brief survey of light and darkness in the Bible. And I do this because we've all heard this verse, I am the light of the world. But when we look at it against the backdrop of the Old Testament, what I'm trying to do is to bring some of the force that that would have had to its original audience. And so the first place to start with light and darkness is in creation itself. The opening verses of the Bible, Genesis 1, verses 1 to 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. 
God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Throughout history, many of the world's religions have worshipped sources of light. Pagan religions have had sun gods and moon gods. But the Bible begins with showing us that the Lord God has dominion over light itself. The first words of the Lord in the Bible, let there be light. It's what God begins his creation with. During the Israelite wanderings, God used a pillar of light to guide the Israelites in the desert. Exodus chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. That they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from the people. So there we see the fire and light associated with God's presence with his people. And that's especially significant when Jesus says that he is the light of the world. Because in our passage in John chapter 8, Jesus here is still speaking at the Feast of Tabernacles. And as we've said numerous times, part of the purpose of that feast was to commemorate the Israelite wanderings as they journeyed to the promised land. The pillar of light and fire were powerful symbols. Something else that's noteworthy. At the Feast of Tabernacles, light was symbolized in its own meaningful way. Towards the end of the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles, massive torches were lit. They did it on the Temple Mount, the highest point in Jerusalem. They had four lampstands, and each had four bowls that they would fill with oil. I think of that almost like an Olympic torch type of scene. It was said that this light would light up all of Jerusalem. Perhaps that's a bit of an exaggeration, but nevertheless, there was tremendous brightness produced by this light. It's not known in this passage, since it's the end of the feast, if the lamps were still burning or if the fire had gone out when Jesus spoke these words. But nevertheless, the imagery was still fresh in people's minds when Jesus stood up and said, I am the light of the world. It's a well-known verse to Christians. But again, as we continue, I want to focus on a few of the images of light in the Old Testament that I think really help give meaning to Jesus' words. Because light does have such great symbolic richness. And the Old Testament. And so I think it's very helpful to make a few, take a few moments and to go over this. For starters, in the Old Testament, light is associated with God himself. Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? In the Old Testament, light is given as a symbol of the word of God, of the scriptures. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Then again, Psalm 119, verse 30. The unfolding of your words gives light and imparts understanding to the simple. 
Light is a symbol of goodness and righteousness. This goes back to creation. God saw that the light was good. Light is also seen as goodness in contrast to darkness. In the Bible, light is good, darkness is bad. Proverbs 4.19 says, The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Darkness in the Old Testament is seen as apocalyptic judgment and God withdrawing his presence from his people. Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9 and 10. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. In the Old Testament, there is significant links between light and And the temple. As we've said umpteen times in our study of John, the temple represents the presence of God with his people. And the temple was a place of light. That even goes to the design of the temple. The temple was built facing the east towards the sunrise. Lamps were prominent in the temple. Exodus 25 verse 37 says, You shall make seven lamps for it. And the lamps shall be set up as so as to give light on the space in front of it. At our church, when no one is here, we turn the lights off. But in the temple, the lights were meant to continually burn. Leviticus chapter 24 verses 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel to bring your pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly. ESV says regularly. Most other English translations say that a light may be kept burning continually. They kept light burning in the temple. It's a symbol of God's light. Light is a symbol of glory in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 9 talks of the light which the Lord brings. It's a picture of final triumph. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. This same idea is picked up in the Bible's final chapter, Revelation 22. Talks of how there is no need for sun or moon in the new heavens or the new earth. Because God's glory itself is the light of heaven. Revelation 22 verse 5. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the glory of God will be their light. So let's tie all this together. You have light associated with God, with his word, with his righteousness, with the temple, and with the divine glory. And we see all of these themes in the opening chapter of John's gospel. Jesus is all of those things. Light is associated with God. Jesus himself is God. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Same text. Jesus is the Word who was in the beginning, who was and is God. John 1.14 says that the Word became flesh, that Jesus is the true Word of God. 
I talked about light and righteousness. We see the connection of Jesus and his righteousness in John 1, verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness of a sinful world. And Jesus is also the temple. Same passage, John chapter 1, verse 14, says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And as we've discussed before in our coverage of the Gospel of John, just as a reminder that the word for dwelt in verse 14 in Greek literally means tabernacle or pitched a tent among us. And so it has this much deeper meaning that, that Jesus simply came into the world But what it's saying is that Jesus is God who took on flesh in order to be the literal tabernacle, the literal temple, the literal presence of God in the world. Lastly, Jesus himself is the divine glory. Same verse, John 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. Man is not glorious, but Jesus is. Jesus displays his glory during his ministry and makes known the glory of God. Jesus enables us to come before God and to be reconciled to God. Jesus is God. He is the word of God who displays the righteousness of God. And he is the temple of God who displays the glory of God. We also see light in the Old Testament associated with the Messiah and his coming into the world. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. In the Gospel of Matthew, at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus will use this verse and apply it to himself and to his ministry. That he is the great light who has come into the, to a dark world. And it is because Jesus is all of this and more that he could stand up at the temple in Jerusalem and proclaim, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus' I am statement doesn't introduce the idea that Jesus is light and it's not the final passage in John's gospel or in John's writings where he'll touch on the idea of the light that is in God and in Christ. But this passage is the high point of this theme, that Jesus is the light of the world. And so let's take a look at that statement, that verse, word for word, Beginning with I am, which itself is a claim of divinity. In the Gospel of John, Jesus makes seven statements, which are known as the I am statements. We covered the first of these back in July when Jesus said, I am the bread of life. This week's I am statement is the second one. In these statements, Jesus is making revelations about himself, his ministry, and his mission in the world. When Jesus says, I am, he's referring back to Exodus 3, where God reveals himself to Moses 
at the burning bush. Exodus 3, verses 13 and 14. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He's not a light of the world. He is the light of the world. There is no other light. There is no other goodness. There is nothing else which exposes the darkness of sin, of fallen humanity, and of our own hearts. It's yet another reason why we cannot compartmentalize Jesus the Savior from Jesus the man, from Jesus the teacher, from Jesus the Lord. Because it's only because he is God that he can be light. A great teacher cannot be the light of the world. Plato said a lot of great things. He didn't claim to be the light of the world. Buddha had an interesting philosophy. It wasn't revolving around him being the light of the world. Gandhi was one of the most influential leaders in modern history. He never said he was the light. Jesus did. It's because of who he is that he can say that. For anyone else to say that they were the light of the world, they'd be crazy. They'd be out of their mind. They'd be self-aggrandizing. But it's because Jesus is God, the word of God, the righteousness of God, the temple of God, and the glory of God that he can come into a dark world and say, I am the light. Also notice that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He's not just the light of Israel. He's not just the light of Jerusalem. He's the light of the world. That the gospel is for the whole world. The salvation that he brings is for the whole world. The mission that he came for was for the world. Jesus brings a message of life to a dead world because he is the light of in a dark world. He is the light. There is no other source. Back in our verse, Jesus says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. In 1954, a Navy pilot named Jim Lovell who had later become famous as the commander of the Apollo 13 mission, which uh, had to turn back from going to the moon. In 1954, when he was in the Navy, he was on a training flight. He was near Japan. And while he was in the air, some of the instruments in his aircraft failed. He was in darkness. Then the lights shorted out on his instrument panel. More darkness. And he didn't know the direction that he needed to fly in order to get back to his aircraft carrier. Eventually, Lovell was led back to, to the carrier by the glow of phosphorescent algae, which naturally glow, and in the wake of the ship were churned up in the waters and stirred up. And in the darkness, that was the only light which led him back to safety. When you're in darkness... You need light. 
And the Bible teaches us the whole world is sinful and in darkness. But the issue is that even though there is darkness in the world, so often the world doesn't want light. Jesus makes that pronouncement in John chapter 3. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Well, it's true that the way to find our way in darkness is to look to the light. What that verse tells us is that our world so often doesn't want light. And as we've talked about the dangers of darkness and the benefits of light, the world hates the light because the light exposes what's in the darkness. Darkness allows us to hide. Darkness allows us to conceal things. Darkness allows us to do things that we would not otherwise do in the light. That's what Jesus says in chapter 3, verse 20. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But Jesus calls us to follow him. He says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What Jesus is saying at the end of this verse is that our lives indicate whether or not we are truly following him. Because a follower of Jesus does not walk in darkness. Because a follower of Jesus has the light of life. Something very similar is said in 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Is that saying that you'll never sin? Clearly not. Is that saying that you'll never struggle? No. Last week I talked about the balance between grace and law. Grace is a wonderful thing. It is by grace that we are saved. But what grace should not become is a crutch that we use to justify sin. God is gracious. He is merciful. We are called to be gracious and merciful to others as God has been towards us. But what today's verse should do is to keep us from ignoring God's call upon our lives to live in holiness, to live for Christ, and to follow his light. The issue is not whether or not God is forgiving. He is. But if you're living a life contrary to the will of God, it can be convicting that we're not walking in his light to begin with. There are two ways, light and darkness. One is to sin, one is to righteousness. One is to God, one is to worldliness. Let us be people who walk in the light. And as we live and pursue God, and as the darkness in our own lives and hearts is more and more exposed, let us walk further and further into the light of Christ. Because he is the light of the world. And he is the only one to lead us from darkness to the glory of God. Would you pray with me?
Heavenly Father, I do pray for us that we believe in your Son and trust in him as our salvation and the light of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.